in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. The title of this podcast is Gladiatorial Games at Starbucks. But first we have Matthew Lee Embleton to provide us a lecture on the history of Latin, part two. Then we touch on the BBC 1970s TV show, The Palisers. Anyone familiar with Anthony Trollope? And then I would like to share something I saw in front of my local Starbucks store. This is pretty hard for me, for it involves violence and murder. This is a true story. So hold on to your hats. Does anybody wear hats anymore? This is a brief history of the Latin language. At the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the Latin-speaking world was fragmented, but the Germanic tribes that had invaded Roman Italy, Gaul and Hispania eventually adopted the Latin language and some elements of Roman culture but without the standardizing influence of centralized administration, regional dialects began to evolve away from each other in different directions, becoming the Romance languages. Over the centuries, St. Jerome's translation of the Bible became more and more difficult for novice clergy to read and understand due to local changes in grammar, vocabulary and pronunciation. At around the 8th century, in the Abbey of Corby in Picardy in northern Francia, a glossary was created from words of the Bible that had fallen out of use, known as the Reichenau Glossary. It includes words such as field, which was ager, but became campus in modern times, the word for the grounds of a university or college. Cheese was originally caseum, but became formaticum, like the Italian formaggio and the French fromage. Market was originally forum, but later became mercatum, like the modern words for forum and market. Law was juris or juris, but became legis, like the words jurisdiction and legislation. In 842, Charles the Bald of West Francia and Louis the German of East Francia swore a pact with Lothair I of Lotharingia, Middle Francia to recognize Lothair I as the rightful heir of Louis the Pious. Louis the German swore his oath in the Romance language so that the soldiers of Charles the Bald could understand him. This gives us the first written record of Romance language as distinct from Latin. Prodeo amor et pro Christian poblo et nostro commun salvamon. For the love of God and Christendom and our joint salvation, from this day onward, to the best of my knowledge and abilities granted by God, I shall protect my brother Charles by any means possible, as one ought to protect one's brother, insofar as he does the same for me, and I shall never willingly enter into a pact with Lothair against the interests of my brother Charles. While Vulgar Latin evolved into the Romance languages, the space between vernacular and literary language widened. There was also a great deal of borrowing of words. Latin was now no longer a native language, 
but a second language of the educated classes in medieval Europe. With a degree of patience and cooperation, it was still possible for well-educated people to speak to each other in Latin, if neither spoke each other's native language. Emperor Charlemagne brought about a revival in the learning of Latin in the early 9th century in what was called the Carolingian Renaissance. He invited the leading scholars of the time to his court, including Alcuin of York, who wrote a number of educational manuals on grammar and rhetoric. Other literature from this period includes local annals and chronicles, hagiographies, the lives of saints, and other significant people, histories, poetry, travel literature, theological work, and a wide range of legal documents. Medieval Latin developed a much larger vocabulary with many Latinized loanwords from Greek and Germanic languages, and the style of authors varied increasingly depending on their use of spelling, vocabulary, grammar and syntax, which often took on that of the author's native language. Variations in spelling emerged due to frequent abbreviations which were varyingly well known, and differences in the styles of handwriting such as the Carolingian minuscule, for example the letter T with a shortened vertical stem resembled the letter C, resulting in the word etiam, meaning also appearing as echiam, which can be seen in the Magna Carta of 1215. By the late medieval period, it became increasingly difficult for those in one country to understand the Latin of another, and even more difficult when attempting to speak or converse. The opinion among the learned Latinists of the time, particularly those in the church, was that Latin was becoming increasingly adulterated and affected by local languages, also including accent and pronunciation. The massive variation in the quality of Latin came to an end during the rise of nation-states and empires, with newly founded universities becoming leading authorities on Latin, imposing a style that was designed to restore the language to its former classical standard. This coincided with the Renaissance Humanism movement, a revival in the study of classical antiquity. The motto of the movement was ad fontes, meaning to the source. Medieval Latin was pejoratively described by Renaissance humanists as Gothic or Dog Latin, believing instead that only classical Latin was real Latin. The plan to revive Latin was successful in education. Schools taught standardized spellings which were written in full without abbreviation and texts were specially selected for study, excluding much of the works from the late Latin period. While Renaissance Latin was an elegant literary language, it became harder to write about law, medicine, science or contemporary politics while adhering to these new strict rules, overlooking the original need for Latinized loanwords in order to be able to discuss ideas and terms that would not have existed in the classical period. In the 16th century, the invention of the printing press made texts much more widely available and Latin was the language of choice for authors discussing biology, medicine, zoology, botany, cartography, philosophy and religion with a pan-European readership. 60% of English words can be traced back to Latin and many English speakers could recognise new Latin terms as cognates. In 1597, Francisco Suarez wrote Disputationes Metaphysicae, Disputations of Metaphysics. In 1698, Johann Kepler wrote Astronomia Nova, New Astronomy. In 1677, Baruch Spinoza wrote Ethica Ordine Geometrico Demonstrata, 
ethics demonstrated in geometric order. In 1687, Isaac Newton wrote Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, Natural Philosophy and the Principles of Mathematics. At the same time, the Protestant Reformation had removed Latin from the liturgies of the churches of Northern Europe, which inadvertently advanced the cause of a new secular Latin rooted in science and education. Latin was also used as an auxiliary language of diplomacy, used in several treaties, such as the peace treaties of Osnabrück and Münster in 1648, and the Treaty of Vienna in 1738. In the early 18th century, the Hanoverian King George I of Great Britain did not speak English, but communicated in Latin with Prime Minister Robert Walpole, who did not speak German or French. A classical education became increasingly important in the 18th and 19th centuries, and in the days of the British Empire, Latin literature also provided a wealth of texts on military strategy, law, political philosophy and government. These were seen as instructive for the next generation of students who would grow up to keep the British Empire running, and Latin technical phrases continued to be used in law. Sports teams continued to adopt Latin mottos, and sports stadiums across the world echo the architecture of the arenas and hippodromes of the ancient world. Some say Latin is a dead language, but it lives on in the languages that are its continuation and through all that it has influenced and continues to influence. To find out more about my work, visit www.matthewleeembleton.co.uk Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. You know, after listening to his lecture, I sent Matthew an email over Facebook. I remembered something that I had not thought about for years. In my youth, I was an avid watcher of public television. I remember a dramatization of the Anthony Trollope books called The Pallisers. Trollope was an English novelist and a civil servant at the post office. His books are wide and expansive literature, a saga, satire, and parody of Victorian life. There was this one scene that I remember. It had to do with the speaking of Latin. Well, at the time, my brother was taking Latin at Oak Park River Forest High School, and there were books on grammar scattered about the house. My brother even came home one day, and if the fates took his life, he declared that he wanted his body burned upon a pyre while I read the opening of Julius Caesar's The Gallic Wars. Yes, Jeff had a passion for it. The following is a segment from the Pallisers. I believe it's from the book Phineas Redux, the fourth book in a six-book series. What follows is a short scene on how Latin settles a court case. It illustrates how Latin was taught in English schools and was considered a pathway to being truly educated in the eyes of a Victorian gentleman. See if you can catch the lawyer and the judge sparring on who is better versed in Latin grammar. Listen carefully. Phineas Finn, the hero, has been accused of murder, but is saved at the last minute. Has come a person with new evidence, a lady from Prague. 
A lady from Prague? Yes, my lord. A friend of the defendants, a certain Madame Max Gersler, who has been in Prague investigating on his behalf. Oh, by the way, if you watch this clip, you might recognize the defense attorney. His name is Peter Vaughn. Peter Vaughn has been playing old men for almost his entire career on British television. He just has that look about him. You'd recognize him because he plays Maester Amon on Game of Thrones. Investigating what? This killing, my lord? This killing, Mr. Chaffinbrass, took place in London. Oh, nevertheless, my lord, the lady has found evidence in Prague. Are you asking me to believe that a female friend of the prisoner's has uncovered evidence the very existence of which was overlooked by expert detectives? Yes, my lord. Well, who is this Madame Max Gerstler? <clears throat> this is the part of the clip where the surprise witness walks in, Madame Gessler. Shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. So help me God. I trust, Madame Gessler, you are now recovered from your journey. I am well enough, thank you, sir. Good. Now, will you kindly tell the court what, in the first instance, induced you to pay your recent visit to Prague? I went to Prague to see if I could find something to help my friend, Mr. Finn. Yes, but what exactly were you looking for? For a man, any man, who might have spoken to Mr. Emilius when he was last there. And you found such a man? I found many such men. But no one could help me? Until I met Peter Praska, who told me... Oh, by your leave, madam. You must let him tell us for himself. But what was it made you think that this man could help you as you wish? He showed me a mold from which he had made a key. He showed you a mold from which he had made a key. Thank you, madam Gassler. And allow me to say that you are a woman of spunk, madam. Spunk. Call Peter Praska. Peter Praska. This witness speaks no English, my lord, being of Polish extraction and at present a citizen of Prague. I have an interpreter ready to be sworn of need, but since Mr. Praska is a devout Roman Catholic, I suggest we first try to communicate with him, as did Madame Gersler, in the Latin tongue. Very well. If it be Latin, I myself can interpret for the jury. Mr. Finn, may I suggest, sir, that you sit down? I have stood this long, my lord. I shall stand until I am delivered hence. As you please, Mr. Finn, as you please. Now, Mr. Chaffinbrass, let us hear your letter. Et quid fecit took. And what did he do then? Eustem diei nocte. Iste homo clavem dedit mihi. On the night of that same day, he showed me a key. Et usit ut clavem simulum facerum. And told me to copy it. Uh, what was his name? A quid nomen habebat. Your syntax, Mr. Chaffinbrass, is the vilest I've ever heard. <laughs> 
but clear enough. Clear enough. Quid nomen habebat? Nomen habebat Josephe Melius. His name was Joseph Melius, that is, Emilius. Nonne alias res proposuit. Did he propose any other business? Emre voluit ensem parvulum. He wanted to buy a dagger. Did you sell him one? Uh, vendidisti? Nolum habebam. I had none. Said quidem emit durum verbulam. But what he did buy was a small, hard stick. Cuius caput aeris tegmanae decoratum est. The knob of which was embellished with a covering of brass. And now... This is the part where the man that was found in Prague is led into the courtroom. Iste ecce homo! Behold the man! Phineas Finn, having regard to what I have heard this day, I do hereby instruct the jury to acquit you absolutely of the odious and abominable charge made against you. Phineas Finn, you leave this court with your honor unstained, with your honor indeed enhanced by the steadiness and manliness of your bearing throughout this hideous ordeal. It has, I hope, been some consolation for you to hear the terms in which your friends have spoken of you from the witness box. And I trust that you may be able at once to resume your place among the legislators of this country. The court will be upstanding. There is something that I've been noticing lately. Our proposals to make Latin the language of the European Union. Now, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that Latin is a dead language. And that may be true, but for being dead, it certainly has an extraordinary afterlife. Phrases in Latin are peppered throughout the English language and used consistently in medicine and law. In the European Union efforts in trying to find a new identity, proposals to make Latin the EU's official language is discussed as an intellectual thought experiment. English now cements trade and politics. At one time, especially in the 1800s, French played that role. Many have proposed that Chinese will be the language to know in the future. Is it possible? Well, who knows? All I know is that I feel stymied that I did not study Latin in school. 50% of all English words are derived from Latin, and an etymology class that I took in high school was eye-opening. Don't tell anyone, but I own a Latin dictionary and have perused it at night, amazed at the history of English and Latin and the formula of which it is mixed. The one thing I do know for Latin to become the official language of this gigantic political and trade organization called the European Union, a landmass composed of 24 official languages, by the way, there would have to be a decades-long pan-European muscle movement to make this happen. Hebrew was a sacred language 
that developed into everyday use. Latin was a sacred language used in church, the law, and medicine. It took a people determined to build a country to make Hebrew into a living, speaking language that millions now use on a daily basis. Can it be done for Latin? Only time will tell. Solum Tempest Narabo. Yesterday, I was witness to a murder. The last thing I would expect is to see a gladiatorial bout on Ballinger Avenue. It took place out on the street. I was walking towards the entrance of Starbucks. Tables were set up outside. A woman and her boyfriend were enjoying their drinks. It was a nice day. But as I was walking by their table, I heard a terrifying scream. I looked around, and a woman stood up in a fright. She was looking down at her table in shock. She backed away, tipping over her chair as she walked backwards. Something scared her. Something scared me. For on her table, by her cafe americano, was a praying mantis. It just stood there, looking up at her. I mean, it was looking up at her, defiantly. Now let's get something straight. Don't misunderstand the adjective that precedes the name. Praying meaning the act of a solemn request or an expression of thanks to a deity is not the proper word for this walking, ill-tempered, insectoid. Notice how I'm spelling out the adjective. The word praying, P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, is far from the truth when it comes to this coniferous monster. The proper spelling should be P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, praying. I had my run-in with this beastie before. Notice I threw in a Scottish-sounding description to relate my dislike for the creature. Once upon a time, when I was just a child and was playing hide-and-seek next to Lake Michigan, I hid amongst the tall grasses on the beach. I felt something heavy on my cheek. This praying mantis had jumped off a bush and hung onto my left cheek, holding onto my fleshy cheek with both pincers. I absentmindedly slapped it away, and I saw it fly off. It still gives me the shivers. I could still feel it on my cheek, holding on and wondering how he was going to eat the behemoth catch that he managed to grab at the end of his hunt. I am now involuntarily shivering. Anyway, the thought of my encounter has haunted my dreams for years. Now let's go back to the incident in front of Starbucks. By now, a crowd had gathered. It was Saturday afternoon, after all. Everyone was up and about. When hearing the woman's scream, the pedestrians pressed forward, wondering what the hell was going on. Well, it was something to do. The only thing I can compare it to is highway traffic. You know what I mean. 
the utter fascination in seeing a wreck by the side of the road. People wanted to know why she screamed. It was not a small squeak, not even a scream followed by laughter. Oh, I scared myself type of scream. It was a full-throated scream of a woman terrified. In fact, I wondered if I was the one screaming. Hmm. Ponder. Shudder. Anyway. Now, her boyfriend didn't seem to mind. He was more amused by her reaction than anything else. In typical boyfriend fashion, he picked up the creature between his finger and thumb, watching the mantis struggle for a moment, and then let it go. It dropped back down on the table with a plop, and all he succeeded in doing was pissing off the insect. I swear it looked like the creature dusted himself off and went back to terrorizing the woman. The woman screamed again. The praying mantis didn't like it. Like a gladiator wielding its weapons, in the left hand shield and in the right spear, his two enormous pincers rose up towards the woman. This is the point when someone else stepped in. A robin redbreast flew down from the tree. It dropped down on top of the table like a gladiator entering the arena. The bird placed itself between the woman and the insect. I could read the bird's mind. I really could. Stay behind me. I'll take care of this. Well, that's what it looked like anyway. The crowd pressed closer to the table in expectation. Now you have to imagine what happened next. And I assure you the following is absolutely true. The praying mantis was in full battle mode. He, well, maybe it was a she, was not going to be put off by a mere robin redbreast. Why should this monster fear a sweet, happy robin decided to drop in and see what was going on? I expected the sweet, happy robin to flutter its wings and say, Oops, got an appointment, see ya, and fly away. Nope. That's not what happened. The insect took a few steps forward, his pincers at the ready, and by its body movement and its rush forward to take on the interloper, I could hear the mantis shout, Fool with me, will ya? Well, it was then I saw something far scarier. It was something I'd never seen in my entire life. It was the last thing that you or anyone else would expect. The sweet, happy robin changed. I'd never seen a robin get angry before. I'm serious. The robin got seriously pissed off. Its head lowered. Its wings spread out from the body, making the bird seem three times larger than it was. And the bird made a horrifying sound between a screech and a wobble. This bird was angry. He was the meanest-looking robin I'd ever laid eyes on. Its yellow beak opened up, revealing a gaping, massive maw. Well, not to me, but to the mantis. What do you think happened next? The bird took the mantis in its giant beak and flew away. Lunch was served. The crowd dispersed. I got my hot tea and muffin. The robin got lunch. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it?
This was a true story from Rob Kane at Ancient Rome Refocused.